The lure of the sea is an ancient one for us humans, and perhaps no sailing vessel has garnered more attention than the RMS Titanic. It's a story we all know, or think we know, a classic tale of ship meets iceberg. But what if that's not the real story? What if something else was the cause and the iceberg is just a patsy? What if it was sunk deliberately and there was a cover-up? Or what if it never really sank at all? Just last month was the 100th anniversary of the sinking of the Titanic, but we've missed that milestone. However, next week, May 31st, is the 111th anniversary of its launch, so we'll use that as an excuse to take a look at the official story, several alternatives, and much, much more. And this being Conspiracy Clearinghouse, I have a sinking feeling it'll get weird. (laughs) Get it? I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Conspiracy Clearinghouse, Atlas Atlas Sank, Sank. Titanic Titanic Conspiracies. Don't forget, you can subscribe to this podcast, and if you like what we do, you can donate via our Buy Me a Coffee page. You leave the world behind and enter a large chamber, filled with boxes and crates as far as the eye can see. Welcome to The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. The podcast that takes a rather skeptical look at conspiracies and mysteries. Each episode will examine various conspiracy theories, most of which are not true, a few of which might be a little bit true, and even a couple that turned out, in fact, to be true. There are many boxes in the clearinghouse, and along the way, we'll look at some mysteries and hoaxes as well. We dare to look behind the curtain that's behind the curtain. I'm your host, Derek DeWitt. Welcome to the Conspiracy Clearinghouse. What What we we know. I have no idea why the sinking of the ship has captured so many people's imaginations. Maybe if you're a money-oriented person, it's the sheer wealth that was aboard. If you're a romantic, maybe it's the grandeur. If you're a diver, it was a decades-long hunt to find the wreck. If you're a working-class warrior, maybe it's a symbol of class distinctions. That's something that I actually came across in the wildly popular 1997 film by James Cameron, which actually was a pretty decent romantic story if you like that kind of thing, though I don't particularly, and I certainly wouldn't have given it best picture. I would have given it goodwill hunting, but nobody asked me. Maybe the appeal is, ha-ha, they said it was unsinkable, but it totally wasn't, and then it sank on its maiden voyage. Sort of a schadenfreude kind of a thing. One thing's for sure, people are really into the Titanic. Today, there have been 17 fiction films about it, at least 24 documentaries, TV episodes and specials, plays, books, including an award-winning but weird science fiction book by Connie Willis called Passage that says that where we go when we die is a sort of a representation of the Titanic. There have also been poems, songs, multimedia works, video games, and much, much more. And apparently, the Titanic even entered American slang in the 1960s when there was a phrase, rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic, meaning to waste effort on something that will soon become meaningless and pointless. I don't know. Personally, I've never given two sticks about the Titanic. That is, until I found out that, yes, Virginia, even here, there are conspiracy theories about it. 
But before we dive into various secret histories, let's review the facts as we know them, or think we know them. The Titanic was not only the largest ship in the White Star Line, but in the world when it set out on its maiden voyage on April 10th, 1912, almost a year after it was officially launched, during which it was going through sea trials. It was just over 880 feet long, 269 meters, 92 feet wide, 28 meters, and 104 feet tall, 32 meters. It left Southampton on April 10th, stopped at Cherbourg, France, then went to Queenstown, Ireland, which is now called Cobb, and then turned west to cross the Atlantic, bound for New York City. At 11.40 on the fourth day, about 375 miles south of Newfoundland, that's about 600 kilometers, in an area known as Iceberg Alley, it struck an iceberg, which ripped open six slits of the starboard hull, exposing five of the 16 watertight compartments to the sea. Alas, it was built to withstand four of those compartments being flooded, but not six. Evacuations of the lifeboats started at 12.30, following the dictum of women and children first, but things progressed slowly. At 2.10, with the bow underwater and that weight causing the back of the ship to rise, the electricity went out. At 2.17, with more than 1,000 people still aboard, it broke in half. The entire structure went underwater at 2.19 and hit the ocean bottom five minutes later. There's actually a video of a computer simulation of the Titanic sinking in real time, which you can see if you like that sort of thing in the dedicated playlist for this episode on our YouTube channel. The RMS Carpathia arrived and managed to get 712 people out of the water in lifeboats. The other 1,496 passengers all perished. The exact number of people who died varies depending on your sources, but the incredibly comprehensive website Encyclopedia Titanica has those figures, so those are the ones I'm going to use. Among the dead were millionaires, industrialists, artists, architects, and many other members of the upper crust. The wreck would remain unfound until 1985. That underwater spot is now a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Since then, many artifacts have been recovered and gone on numerous successful world tours. Mistakes were made, for sure. Last-minute changes to personnel had officers being replaced, and in the rush, the key for the binoculars locker was left behind in England, so the lookouts had to use their naked eyes to watch out for hazards. The ship had been too big to actually dock properly, and the rivets used for the outer hull were larger than those normally used, and had to be fixed by hand instead of using machinery. As such, they were less sturdy, and they snapped under the force of the impact with the iceberg. And some of those rivets just popped off from the force of the collision. In the moments before the collision, as they saw the iceberg approaching, the first officer ordered the engines to hard reverse, but the propeller was so large and had so much momentum that it could be stopped but not reversed, and so the ship drifted ahead from its momentum. You also have to keep in mind that for some strange reason, the ship had been traveling at 22 knots which is about 25 miles an hour, 41 kilometers an hour, which is an exceedingly fast speed for a large vessel like this, even on open water. And this helped fracture the hull further after the impact. And the fact that the propeller had been stopped reduced the Titanic's ability to turn. Just after the collision, the first officer ordered a turn to port, but the panic steersman turned the wrong way towards starboard and the fractures in the hull, which caused the ship to take on water even faster. The ship's owner then also ordered the captain to continue going slow ahead, which also helped 
pull water into the damaged areas and sink the ship faster. It's interesting to note that in the original reports, both of these pieces of information were withheld because it might have nullified the insurance claims. After the crash, passengers opened portholes to see what had happened, and then when the order came to evacuate, most of them left those portholes open, which also caused the ship to take on water faster. Even though the Titanic had space for 64 lifeboats, it was only carrying 20, a decision made by White Star. As such, they only had capacity for 1,178 people, and yet there were more than 2,200 people on board. When they were later criticized about this, the company pointed out that British law only required them to have lifeboat capacity for 900 people, so they were well over that minimum and in compliance. Even so, only 18 of the 20 lifeboats on the vessel managed to get lowered into the water before the ship went down. The weather was also against them. The Gulf Stream was pulling in an unusually large amount of warm water from the equator, which caused more icebergs to calve off of the northern ice shelves. As a result, there were far more icebergs in Iceberg Alley than normal. Some other ships were aware of the increase in iceberg activity, and they sent six messages warning of extra icebergs on the 11th, three days before the collision. But the radio operators ignored them. They also ignored an additional five warning messages on the 12th, three on the 13th, and another six on the 14th, the very day the ship was struck. In 2012, astronomers at Texas State University observed the effects of tides that came from a conjunction of the sun, the moon, and the earth, which resulted in higher tides in the waters south of Newfoundland, known as Iceberg Alley, and they also noted that the last time there had been such a conjunction was April 1912. So it's possible that there were much higher tides on that fateful night. Also, the moon was not visible in the sky, so there was less light to see, and those binoculars are locked away in a cabinet. The sea was also extremely calm, which means the icebergs caused no waves. They just floated along silently. And there was a combination of atmospheric effects resulting in something called super refraction, which is when the horizon seems to be higher than normal. This would also have hidden the iceberg from view, certainly to the naked eye. Just after the iceberg struck, crew members launched distress rockets towards the SS Californian, which wasn't terribly far away, but the super refraction made those rockets appear to the Californian to be lower than they really were, and even though the Californian couldn't have done anything to help because they were stuck in ice, their reports to other ships that might have been able to help reported the wrong location because of this super refraction thing. Perhaps the most perplexing thing is the decision of Captain Edward J. Smith to wait a whole 20 minutes before even calling out to other ships for help. So it would seem a combination of error, bad luck, and hubris all sort of created a perfect storm, if you will, that led to the sinking of the largest sea vessel in human history up to that point and the deaths of around 1,500 people. Yeah? yeah? Is that, is that what, you, what think? you think? Sheeple? Sheeple. Man, Man, you are, you are so, so gullible. gullible. What we what think we, think we, know. we know. Before we get to the more outlandish notions out there, let's take a closer look at some of them that seem reasonable, maybe even are often taken as accepted fact. 
like that the Titanic had been touted as unsinkable and yet, ha ha, it sank. While there were three articles before its maiden voyage that used the term practically unsinkable, the term unsinkable didn't appear until April 16th, the day after it went down in a New York Times article. This was taken from a quote from the VP of the White Star Lines holding company, which was, quote, I thought her unsinkable, and I based my opinion on the best expert advice available. I do not understand it. Ever since then, the idea that it had been known as the unsinkable Titanic has stuck, but that was an after-the-fact addition. Or that it was while the ship was floundering, the Morse code combination SOS was used for the very first time, and that the radio operators kind of just came up with it on the spot. In fact, SOS had been proposed as a new signal for HELP back in 1906 to replace the old CQD code that was created in 1904 and officially adopted in 1908. Many ships all over the world, in fact, had started using SOS when necessary, but the British lagged behind everyone else, and so for them, in 1912, SOS was still fairly novel. In fact, Jack Phillips, the first wireless operator, started sending the CQD code, and then Harold Bride, the second wireless operator, joked maybe he should use that new SOS code since this might be his only time to try it out. So Phillips started mixing in the SOS code along with CQD, which he still felt more comfortable with. And incidentally, CQD came from abbreviating the French word Sécurité to CQ, which, if you say it in English letters, is CQ, and then adding a D to mean distress. So the whole code sort of meant all stations distress. The emergency SOS code is an abbreviation of nothing. It does not mean save our souls or save our ship. It quite simply is a very easy code. Three dots, three dashes, three dots that the Germans had already been using since 1904 because it was more efficient. The story that the first person to get word of the disaster was David Sarnoff, who would go on to head RCA, using a Marconi wireless telegraph on the roof of New York's Watermarker department store, and that for three days he relayed updates to a breathless public. This story has no contemporary corroboration apart from Mr. Sarnoff himself who often repeated it to anybody who would listen. The band of the ship played Nearer My God to Thee as they went down. This came from a Canadian passenger who survived. But second wireless operator Harold Bride said, no, no, they were playing the song Autumn. This is actually more believable since the Canadian Vera Dick, the source of the Near My God to Thee claim, had gotten in a lifeboat an hour and a half before everything went under, while Bride was standing next to the band and actually just sort of floated off the deck as the ship went beneath the surface of the water. Miss Dick probably confused a story of the ship band on the steamer SS Valencia, which had gone down in Canadian waters back in 1906, and they had been playing Near My God to Thee. It seems like a weird choice since Near My God to Thee is all about, hey God, I'm about to meet you soon, which seems a bit dour. At a memorial for the musicians on May 24th, a month and a half after the tragedy, the London Orchestra played the song Horbury, and two Titanic survivors in the audience swore that this was the song that the band was playing as the mighty ship went down. They'd heard it from their lifeboat. Horbury uses the lyrics of Nearer My God to Thee, but a different tune. 
However, Horbury is an Anglican or Church of England version of another hymn called Propioro Dio, which is Methodist, and Wallace Harvey, the bandmaster of the ship, was a devout Methodist, and there were several Methodists in the band. So it seems unlikely that as their very last act on earth, they would conduct an Anglican hymn. Years later, another survivor said that he too had heard the band from his lifeboat, but while the music they played was, quote, cheerful, he didn't actually recognize any of the tunes. The 1958 movie A Night to Remember has them playing the song Horbury, but the 1953 film Titanic, as well as James Cameron's 1997 film of the same name, have the band playing a song called Bethany. The fact is, we do not know what song they were playing. The innovative watertight doors were all closed as water started flooding into the lower decks, which seems like the logical thing to do. But later analysis of events showed that had those doors been left open, the water would have distributed more evenly throughout the structure, which would have slowed the sinking, allowing more people to be rescued, which seems logical. But in a later look at how things were, it was determined that had that been the case, the Titanic really would have capsized half an hour earlier than it did. And this was confirmed in 1998 by a computer simulation conducted for a documentary on the Discovery Channel called Titanic Secrets Revealed. So closing the doors was the right thing to do. The hull's integrity was compromised by a coal fire that had broken out in the coal bunker days before the Titanic even set sail. And the fire continued to burn throughout the entire voyage the heat from that fire caused the hull to expand, weakening it. Later experts, however, say there is almost certainly no way that this kind of fire, if it even happened, would have affected the hull in any meaningful way. But the idea continues to float around, if you will, most recently in the 2017 documentary Titanic, The New Evidence, which also said there was a big cover-up about the coal fire, because of course there was. Inquiries were opened in both the U.S. and the U.K., with the American one ruling the sinking as, quote, an act of God, and the British one finding that the culprit was an iceberg, which struck the ship while it was going too fast. The British also found no truth to the rumor that had been going around that third-class passengers had all been locked in below decks and drowned. But since neither investigation directly placed blame on J. Bruce Ismay, managing director of the White Star Line and highest ranking member of the company to survive the Titanic disaster, people started saying the whole thing was really a big cover-up because J. Bruce Ismay was, wait for it, a, a Freemason. Free and so were many people on the investigative panels. And you know how they are. A story also went around that Ismay, first off, ordered the captain to travel at that astonishing speed of 22 knots because he wanted to set a new speed record. But then after the collision, Ismay dressed in women's clothes and tried to get himself into a lifeboat. This is where the idea many of us have today that this was common probably comes from. However, Ismay was actually kind of awesome during the crisis, lowering lifeboats into the water and helping people aboard them when there was no one else to do so. The Ismay is a Big Fat Coward story was cooked up by newspaperman William Randolph Hearst, who had a long-standing feud with Ismay from the days when Ismay was Hearst's agent. 
A handful of survivors corroborated Hearst's unfounded claims in an effort to squeeze more money out of the insurance company, but this entire Ismay is a chicken story was totally fabricated. Speaking of fabric, there's a story that Ismay went around the last two days before the Titanic set sail, demanding the modern linoleum flooring that was all over the ship be carpeted over. I haven't come across a specific carpet-related conspiracy theory, but it does go a little ways to showing just how hectic and chaotic those final days were before the Titanic set out on its fateful voyage. Shape Shape of things things to to come. We know about the Titanic and the California being stuck in the ice and the Caledonia, but some say there was another ship on the scene as well, the Norwegian sealing vessel, the Samson. This rumor started in the 1960s and has it that one of the officers of the Samson told a Norwegian newspaper in 1912 that their ship had been near a very large liner that was firing signal rockets in the wee hours of April 15th, but since they had been seal hunting in the area illegally, they snuck off rather than give assistance. This account has been pretty much debunked as many of the details just don't add up. But plenty of people would try and claim some connection or another to the disaster, no matter how tenuous. And some people thought there might have been some kind of supernatural premonitions. premonitions. It was noted back in 1889, an American writer named Morgan Robertson wrote a novel titled Futility or the Wreck of the Titan about a huge British liner that sinks during its maiden voyage in April after hitting an iceberg and it was not carrying enough lifeboats. The name of the ship? The Titan. Titan? Titanic? Huh? Was this some sort of semi-mystical foreshadowing? Or was this Robertson guy somehow privy to a plot 14 years in the making? A short story titled The White Ghost of Disaster by Thornton Jenkins Haynes under the pen name Maine Clue Garnet appeared in the May 1st, 1912 edition of something called The Popular Magazine, which is all about a large passenger liner striking an iceberg and most of the people die. It's assumed he'd probably been already working on this story when the Titanic disaster occurred just three weeks before publication, but who knows, maybe it was a rush job. The Titanic had been big news for a while, or maybe he, like most people, knew that the Titanic was going to be setting sail soon, and he just speculated as to, gee, I wonder if this could happen. German writer Gerhard Hauptmann, who shortly after these events would win the Nobel Prize, had written a book originally published as a magazine serial called Atlantis about a huge ocean liner named the Roland that ends up in pretty much the identical circumstances the Titanic found itself in. A year later, Danish filmmaker August Blom made a silent film based on this novel, hoping to capitalize on the infamy of the Titanic disaster. The movie was banned in Norway for being in bad taste, and while it never made its money back, it has since been regarded by critics as one of the first truly modern films. And then there's William Thomas Stead, a British journalist often credited with being one of the very first investigative journalists. In 1886, he wrote a fictional short story called How the Mail Steamer Went Down in Mid-Atlantic by a Survivor, about two ships colliding and there not being enough lifeboats. And four years after that, he wrote another story, From the Old World to the New, about a White Star Line ship named the Majestic that ends up rescuing survivors of another ship that had hit an iceberg. 
So So what? what? Well, he had been very involved in spiritualism circles, often claiming he could communicate with his assistant editor using telepathy and automatic writing, and he was one of the dupes along with fellow writer Arthur Conan Doyle of the Agnes and Julius Zanzig telepathy scam. And William Thomas Stead was aboard the Titanic on that faithful voyage, and survivors said he was helping people into lifeboats and he even gave another passenger his own life jacket. He went down into the water with so many others and was seen by one person holding onto a raft with millionaire John Jacob Astor IV. Both of those men drowned. Instead, it was noted by friends and associates, had often said that he had been told in his trances and communications with the spirits that he would die either by lynching or by drowning. Ten years later, his daughter claimed to have contacted his spirit using a medium, and then rumors started that somehow Mr. Stead had foreseen his own death in those earlier short stories, giving more proof to the truth of spiritualism and mediums. I want want my my mummy. mummy. But the first serious woo-woo theory started circulating just a month after the mighty ship went down. On May 12, 1912, the Washington Post ran the following article. Ghost of the Titanic, Vengeance of Hoodoo Mummy Followed Man Who Wrote Its History. This told the tale of an excavation at Luxor in Egypt back in the late 1890s, quote-unquote, which unearthed the sarcophagus and well-preserved mummy of a princess of Amun-Ra, who died somewhere around 1500 BCE. Uh, Four men were involved in the discovery, and then they drew lots to see who would have the privilege of buying the other three out and claim sole ownership. The lucky winner had the ornate coffin shipped to his hotel room. Later, on the day the mummy arrived, he was seen walking out into the desert. He never came back, and his body was never found. The following day, one of the other men was accidentally shot by a servant and had to have his arm amputated. Upon returning to England, a third man of the four was shocked to discover that the bank where he'd had all his money had collapsed and now he was destitute. And the fourth and final man fell gravely ill, lost his employment, and ended up a pauper selling matches on street corners. The sarcophagus got to England eventually, reportedly wreaking havoc with anyone who came into contact with it, and was bought by a businessman in London. After an accident on the road severely injured three people in his family and his house burnt down, he decided the mummy was a problem and he donated it to the British Museum. While it was being unloaded there, the truck carrying it suddenly and inexplicably reversed, trapping one worker against a wall. While it was being brought up some stairs, it fell, breaking one of the two workers' legs. The other worker died unexpectedly two days later, cause undetermined. The mummy was placed in the Egyptian room, but night watchmen complained of hearing the sounds of sobbing and loud hammering from inside the coffin. One guard died, and the other one quit. One day, a visitor, apparently some sort of anti-Egyptian racist, disdainfully smacked the coffin's face with his handkerchief, and shortly afterward, his only child died of measles. More incidents such as these forced the museum to finally remove the sarcophagus from public view and stick it down in the basement. One of the men who moved it down there sickened and died within a week, and the man who oversaw the transfer to the basement was found dead at his desk, cause unknown. Well, needless to say, word got out about this cursed Egyptian mummy and journalists became very interested. One took a photo of the face painted on the sarcophagus lid, but when he developed it, instead of a stylized painted face, he saw a human face screaming. He went home and shot himself in the head. 
and more events followed until the museum finally sold it to a private collector who also suffered tragedies and misfortunes and finally that man put it in his attic and locked the door. Enter Madame Helena Blavatsky, founder of the quack mystical pseudoscience theosophy and famous medium who could communicate with the spirit world. She said, yep, this thing you got up there is cursed and you should get rid of it. But nobody wanted to buy a mummy that had caused 20 deaths and maulings in less than 10 years. So in the attic it sat until April 1912, when a skeptical American archaeologist bought it and arranged to have it shipped back to him in the United States on, you guessed it, the maiden voyage of the Titanic. And clearly, it was the curse of the Princess of Amun-Ra that sealed that ship's fate. Wow, that's a great story. A few problems, though. First off, the lack of an actual year in which the four original finders uncovered the mummy is a bit of a problem. The late 1890s, quote-unquote, is pretty vague. Secondly, Madame Blavatsky died in 1891, which is in the early 1890s, and so certainly could not have seen the mummy 10 years after it was discovered in the late 1890s. And of course, when the wreck of the Titanic was finally found in 1985, the cargo manifest was recovered, and no, there is no mummy listed as being aboard the ill-fated vessel. And finally, this supposedly cursed mummy is actually not a mummy, it's just the lid of a sarcophagus of a princess of Amun-Ra, not the whole coffin, and certainly not the whole mummy. And it is still in the British Museum today. So where the heck did this whole thing come from? Well, from William Thomas Stead, the journalism pioneer who died on the Titanic and who I just talked about, and his buddy, Douglas Murray. Murray was one of the original four who found the sarcophagus lid, and he's the one who ended up buying out the others back in 1899. There's a specific year. The four of them had not found it in the desert. They found it for sale by an Arab who had found it himself out in the desert back in the 1880s. No, Mr. Douglas Murray did not wander off into the desert swallowed up by the sands of time, but he did have a shotgun misfire and explode while duck hunting on the Nile, injuring his arm quite badly, and through a series of unfortunate events and bad weather, he didn't get to see a doctor for 10 days, and by then gangrene had set in, and his arm had to be amputated. Or maybe not. <laughs> that was just one version of events that was floating around in high society circles. At any rate, Murray was pals with William Stead, and they used to tell variations of this cursed mummy tale or cursed sarcophagus or cursed sarcophagus lid to great effect at social gatherings. In fact, William Stead himself told a version of the story on the Titanic long into the night of April 12th, ending after midnight on April 13th. And the very next day, the Titanic hit the iceberg and went down, as did Stead himself. But some survivors remembered hearing his ghastly story from the night before, and so it circulated around, shifting as stories do, until finally a gullible journalist from WAPO decided to write it up as fact. Once this story appeared in the Washington Post, it sparked a resurgence of interest in mysterious Egypt. Some people think this actually helped Howard Carter and friends secure the funding needed for their 1922 expedition to the Valley of Kings outside Cairo that led to the discovery of tomb KV-62, the tomb of the boy king Tutankhamun, which also engendered stories of curses and deaths. 
There's a variation of the whole A Cursed Mummy Took Down the Titanic story in which the mummy did not actually go down with the ship, but was found and transported to the Carpathia along with those 712 survivors, and it finished its journey to New York, causing trouble aplenty. Finally, the American businessman sold it to a Canadian who also had problems, so he sold it to someone in England, but the liner that was traveling to Liverpool carrying it back to England, the Empress of Ireland, collided with a Norwegian coal ship on May 29, 1914, and sank so fast that only seven lifeboats managed to get into the water. 840 people died in that disaster, and the mummy went down to Davy Jones' locker. But as I said, it wasn't a mummy, it wasn't even a whole coffin, it was just the lid, and it is still at the British Museum, located in the second Egyptian room, exhibit number 22542. Does the Does Pope, the Pope swim, swim in the woods? In the, woods? In the 1980s, another curse theory cropped up, this time from Belfast, where the Titanic was built. The White Star Line never christened their ships, which led some particularly superstitious sailors to say that all their ships were cursed, and so they shouldn't have been surprised when one of their prized possessions sank. Belfast, of course, is well known for having quite a rift between Catholic and Protestant inhabitants, and the story started going around that the ship's number for the Titanic, which was painted on its side, was 390904. Catholics working at the Harland and Wolf shipyard on the vessel noticed with horror that when you see that number reflected in the water, that is to say backwards, it spells out two words in English, no, no, pope. no pope. This obvious blasphemy was the work of Protestants who wanted to insult the mainly Catholic workforce. Many Catholics refused to do any more work on the ship, and local Catholic inhabitants believed that this insult, in fact, did not go unnoticed by God, who sank the ship in retaliation. Well, except the Harland and Wolf designation for the ship was not 390904, but the number 401, and that was painted on its side. And the Board of Trade registry number for the ship was 131,428 which backwards spells nothing. Also, by the time the Titanic was being built, Harland and Wolf had no Catholic workers at all, basically having driven them all off and implemented a sort of informal Protestants-only hiring policy. This according to Annie Caulfield in her book, Irish Blood, English Heart, Ulster Fry. So none of this is true at all. The source for this seems to be a 1986 book by Walter Lord titled The Night Lives On, published just a year after the wreck was found and there was a renewed interest in all things Titanic. Lord had written the earlier 1955 bestseller about the Titanic, A Night to Remember. Walter Lord's a serious historian and wrote many historical nonfiction books, including The Miracle of Dunkirk, The True Story of Operation Dynamo, which was a major inspiration for Christopher Nolan's film Dunkirk. But in his book, The Night Lives On, Lord says that he received letters from people over the years with this no-pope claim, but he never puts it into the book as his own. And yet people continue to claim it's true and continually ask Titanic experts about it. There's a hole, There's a hole in the boat, the boat in the bottom, the bottom of the sea. Somewhere in the world of Los Angeles public access television in the late 1980s, there's a guy named Franklin Rule. He actually had a doctorate in theoretical physics from UCLA, but he was deeply into the weird stuff. He would go to talk extensively about UFOs and what he termed hypergalactic enigmas. He also claimed to be an expert on things like cryptology, 
thanatology, which is the scientific study of deaths and the effects on the humans of loss, and various conspiracy theories. He was once rejected from America's Got Talent for an act in which he stuck straws into a potato. But back in the earliest days of his career, he was rambling on and on on public access in Southern California. One of his many, many theories was that when the Titanic wreck was found in 1985, there was a big old hole in its side. And some survivors had testified to the U.S. Senate that they had heard explosions deep inside the Titanic after the iceberg collision. Hmm, Muse rule. Could the ship ship have actually actually been been sunk sunk by a torpedo torpedo from a German German U-boat? This was one of his many takes on the Titanic, including getting into the whole premonitions and prophecies about the impending doom of the White Star Line appearing as short stories and books and so on. He then repeated this claim when he managed to snag a real TV gig with his show Mysteries from Beyond the Other Dominion, which was picked up in 1992 by the brand new cable TV channel, The Sci-Fi Channel, who made Rule's Weird Ramble Fest their very first original series. So the first question you got to ask is, were there really U-boats back in 1912? And if so, why would Germany attack a British passenger liner? The first diesel-powered one, the U-19, would not be launched until October 1912, five months after the Titanic tragedy. But the first known instance of a self-propelled torpedo being launched from a U-boat wouldn't occur until September 1914, two months into World War I, when the HMS Pathfinder was sunk by U-21. Now, Germany and France have been sniping at each other in Morocco since 1905, and things escalated in 1911, and France was an ally of Britain. Europe was becoming increasingly polarized, and certainly by the end of 1912, many observers thought widespread conflict was inevitable, just waiting for a spark to set it off, which the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand did in June 1914. But honestly, there's no compelling reason for Germany to have taken down the Titanic, assuming that they actually had developed torpedoes by then. And if they had done so, why wouldn't they have taken credit for it, certainly after hostilities started? Now, what Rule did was what a lot of conspiracy folks do. He saw a hole in the hole and thought, well, that doesn't look like no iceberg did that. And then he just jumped to his imperfect memory of what the 19-teens might have been about. And he did not know that the Titanic actually kind of broke apart on the way down to the ocean floor and suffered more damage upon impact. So that hole was from it hitting the bottom of the ocean and through rust and decay, not from the iceberg. I'm the king of the world. Yeah, you knew that one was going to come up. Okay, well, how about this one? What if the Titanic never sank at all? What would become known as the switch theory was the brainchild of British Titanic conspiracist Robin Gardiner in his 1998 book, Titanic, The Ship That Never Sank. This was the follow-up to his first book, published in 1995, The Titanic Conspiracy, Cover-Ups and Mysteries of the World's Most Famous Sea Disaster. He would go on to write two more Titanic conspiracy books. This was clearly his thing. The switch theory goes like this. The White Star Line switched out the Titanic with her slightly older sister ship, the Olympic, which they then disguised 
as the Titanic. You see, back in September 1911, the Olympic had been damaged in a collision with a Royal Naval warship, the HMS Hawk, which was also damaged. The fault, however, was found to lie with the crew of the Olympic, so the insurance company refused to pay out. So White Star hatched a plan to basically swap the two ships, the Olympic being dressed up as the Titanic and the Titanic as the Olympic, and then they would sink the Olympic disguised as the Titanic, which was already damaged, and then they would collect the Titanic's insurance money. One of the bits of circumstantial evidence that he uses, among many, many other tiny little details, many of which he got wrong, was that in 1902, International Mercantile Marine Group, who owned the White Star Line, had been acquired by the American multimillionaire banker and financier J.P. Morgan. Well, so what, right? Well, you know, the Morgan banking family was super rich, and therefore, they must be super ruthless. I mean, they'd have no problem killing a bunch of people in order to make a profit, right? I mean, the rich are basically evil, right? And here's the kicker. Morgan was supposed to be on that transatlantic crossing on the Titanic, but canceled at the last minute because he knew it was going to be sunk. Though no one's actually found any definitive proof as to why J.P. Morgan canceled his Titanic trip at the last minute. One actually serious researcher thinks it's because France had just changed laws about Americans exporting art from Europe, and so Morgan detoured to Paris to get a bunch of his recent purchases safely away before the new restrictions went into effect. But unfounded speculation as fact was certainly good enough for Gardner and for many others who took his idea and ran with it, writing up their own books and blog posts. Some of these found yet more teeny tiny proofs to back up the switch theory, while others expanded it to include things like, did you also know that many of the people who supposedly died on the Titanic did not, in fact, die, but went into hiding, collecting the insurance money, and laughing their rich, evil heads off? Like many of the super-rich, J.P. Morgan continues to hold power over public imagination even now, 109 years after his death. There is another Morgan-related Titanic conspiracy theory that first started showing up on social media in the form of a meme. This claimed that, no, it really was the Titanic that sunk, but it was done deliberately by J.P. Morgan. The reason for this was that many of his enemies were aboard, specifically three people. Jacob Astor, real estate millionaire, Isidore Strauss, owner of Macy's, and Benjamin Guggenheim, a mining magnate, all of whom died in the disaster. Because you see, J.P. Morgan was very much behind the creation of a new central banking system, the Federal Reserve System. And these three big mucky mucks were against it. So they had to go. And it worked. The Federal Reserve System was created on December 23, 1913, and the first Federal Reserve Bank went into operation in November 1914. Evil, 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 evil J.P. Morgan. Morgan. But the real problem here is that Guggenheim and Astor had not actually taken a position on the Federal Reserve idea, and Strauss actually supported it. That's not even getting into the whole problem of how exactly Morgan or his cronies managed to maneuver faraway events so that the collision happened the way it did. I mean, was J.P. Morgan the iceberg whisperer? And you might note that not everybody on board died. So how could they have guaranteed that these three guys would be among the dead? I mean, you would think if anybody was going to survive, it would be some people in the super rich category, right? And these three were hardly the only rich people to die on the Titanic. In fact, there were so many of the wealthy aboard, the press had dubbed it the Millionaire's Special. 
Oh, yeah, say the conspiracy folks. Well, well just look just what, what happened when the Federal, Federal Reserve went into service. service. I mean, who benefits? Why, the United States itself was transformed from a government for the people by the people into an incorporated business. It even has its own business ID number, 28USC300215. From then on, a process to strip all freedom out of America began, finalized when the nation finally went off the gold standard in 1933. And needless to say, this whole thing was taken up and wholly endorsed by many of the tax protesters and sovereign citizen people mentioned in a previous episode about pseudo-law. But QAnoners have taken up the hue and cry like they do, and they are now claiming the whole murder fellow millionaires to usher in the Federal Reserve theory is, in fact, True. An early version of the Q take on this had it that, well, you know, you know, J.P. Morgan was a Jew. And while it's comforting in kind of a weird way that the whole QAnon thing is finally getting around to embracing the anti-Semitism that we all knew they eventually would, the Morgan family actually comes from Wales and are not Jewish at all. A few cures who I guess know how to use Google must have figured this out because shortly afterwards the memes changed to the idea that no, it wasn't Morgan behind it all, even though he owned the parent company. It was the Rothschilds, and they're certainly Jewish. But of course, the Rothschilds didn't have anything to do with International Mercantile Marine Group. Morgan did. Oh, well, yeah, it's easy to trace. I mean, Morgan's a millionaire, the Rothschilds were millionaire, plus Jewish, so like double evil, and that's basically the same thing. It's so easy when you look at the facts. And if that's not enough, though it totally should be, the Rothschilds were also in control of the Illuminati. So, ha, ha. And so ends our survey of all Titanic-related conspiracy theories that I can stomach. I did not come across any that specifically mentioned UFOs, which is frankly a bit surprising, even though there's an amazing amount of evidence that the official story, ship, night, weird weather, iceberg, insufficient lifeboats, is the real story. Some folks are just going to go down whatever rabbit hole they can find, and if necessary, dig their own. For whatever reason, the Titanic has captured the imagination of millions of people. And while the aftermath of the disaster saw new regulations for seafaring safety implemented, which probably saved lots of lives in the long run, nothing will ever bring back those who perished over a hundred years ago in the early hours of April 15th, 1912 in the cold, dark, briny waters of the North Atlantic. I'm sure more kooky notions about this event will crop up in the future and previous ones will get resurrected or embellished. As J.P. Morgan himself once said, you can't unscramble eggs. Thank you for visiting The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. We're closing now, but we'll open another crate in the next episode. Until then, thank you for listening.